Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. So we have been uh, going over um, a sermon series on the book of Hosea, and the time, I believe, is right. I've got my fingers on the pulse of the people. We are, we are anxiously awaiting to get out of the book of Hosea. I think that we have expended all of our energies. We've got two weeks left, and tonight I posted on Facebook that I'm going to do my best impersonation this evening of, the, of, a, of a very good Episcopalian minister in that I hope to give you what might be anywhere from a 10 to 13 minute long homily around some of the ideas of the book of Hosea. Now, you also know that when I don't have a manuscript in front of me that all bets are off and I might just go on for 45 minutes. Who knows? Because I happen to like the Old Testament and I can, can get into some of those things. This passage that we're looking at is a very rich passage that has a lot for us to consider. Uh, but I want to lead us there a bit. There's only a handful of verses that we are looking at in Hosea chapter 12. Just one word of background. We're kind of into the third a major portion of the book of Hosea. The prophet is beginning to wrap things up. Though remember, these speeches are, it's not as though he's coming to the end of one long sermon. These speeches are sporadically placed throughout his ministry and the editor or the author of this book has put them into this collection. But here at the end, we're beginning to see God kind of going between um, punishing the people, but also being very gracious to the people. We're seeing impending judgment for the sins and the recalcitrance of the people of Israel, but we're also seeing God's heart to forgive and to be gracious and to be in continued relationship with these people. And tonight's text is really no different. There's, there's hints of impending judgment, but there's also hope in this passage. And for us, I think that this is going to be a message of conviction, if nothing else. The book of Hosea, we're going to begin in chapter 12, verse 2. Some scholars would say that 12, verses 2 through 6, comprises its own unit of thought. However, there's lots of uh, discussion on how to break up the different sections in Hosea. But we are going to be looking at Hosea chapter 12, beginning in verse 2 and reading through verse 6. It says, The Lord has a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways and respond to him according to his deeds. From the womb, he tried to be the oldest of twin brothers. As an adult, he struggled with God. He struggled with the messenger and survived. He wept and sought his favor. He met him at Bethel and there he spoke with him. The Lord God of heavenly forces. The Lord is his name. But you, return to your God with faithful love and justice and wait continually for your God. The word of God for the people of God. 
So this section in Hosea chapter 12, it's within a larger section that is focusing on an indictment between God and the people of Israel. And it's an indictment that specifically focuses on deceitfulness or a lack of truth telling, if you will. And this is one of those oracles in this larger indictment all throughout the prophetic literature. It's not weird for the prophet to conjure up a courtroom sort of scene where God is taking his people into the courtroom and having a decision to be made as to the merits of, of their life. And don't read that in a way where it's um, works-based stuff. We're not going there tonight. But God is, is, is leveling an indictment against the people to see what it is that they have done in the past. And what this is focusing on is their continued deceitfulness and the way that they have cheated God and the way that they have cheapened their relationship, their covenant relationship with God. The example that the prophet uses here is that of of Jacob, one of the ancestral family members of Israel. Jacob, in fact, his name is changed to Israel later in his story. He is like one of the fathers of the Israelite people. We often hear about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Some people would call them the patriarchs of the family of God. Jacob is a, is a big part of this story, but the prophet is, is bringing out some of Jacob's um, lowest lights. The opposite of a highlight, I guess, would have to be a low light. And this is what the author is bringing out for people to consider in Jacob's life. Now, it's not that strange for people, as you reflect on the Old Testament, to see characteristics being portrayed that aren't necessarily praiseworthy. And Jacob has a lot of those characteristics. The text says, from the womb, Jacob tried to be the oldest of twin brothers. That's a weird translation there. I've got the, the common English Bible. Some people would say that Jacob has tried to supplant his brother in the, um, in the hopes of becoming the oldest. When you have two twin boys, the first one to show up becomes the firstborn. And with that, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, has all sorts of um, privileges. They have the inheritance, and they are the firstborn of the father. They get the fatherly blessing. But as Esau comes out of the womb and is the firstborn, the text says that Jacob has his hand on his brother's heel as he is, as he is emerging into the world. I'm trying to be sensitive with that image, but we're all adults here for the, for the most part. We can, we can handle that. But Jacob has his hand on his brother's heel. Now, what's interesting about this word here, it's not just that Jacob is a heel grabber. The same word in the Hebrew language can also connote deceitfulness. It's kind of like this double entendre. It's playing on the fact that Jacob is, is get, trying to get his brother and bring him back in here so he can bust out and become the firstborn, even in the womb and even in his first moments of life. But it's also playing to the fact that Jacob is a deceiver. Some cool Hebrew scholars talk about trickster theology and how it's, it seems to be privileged within the Old Testament where you trick other people. And Jacob is certainly involved in that. When uh, Jacob is, is the very first narrative that we hear other than the heel grabbing, he is tricking his brother out of his birthright. His brother's out in the field and he's hunting and doing whatever he's doing and he comes back and he's famished and he needs some food and Jacob has this bowl of stew that he's cooked. The text talks about Esau being like a manly and hairy man who likes to go hunt and fish and catch things and trap things. You can think about Brian Sheets if that helps you. Very manly man that wants to put dinner on the table for his family and Jacob is the guy that stays home around his mom's tent, right? He's got like very soft hands, hairless, 
There, there's different qualities between these two. And as Esau is going out to hunt, he comes back and he's famished and Jacob has been mixing up this stew and Jacob says, I'll give you this stew if you give me your birthright. Esau's classic line is, what good is a birthright to me? I'm about to die. And you learn something about Esau in that moment, right? He's a bit of a, of a, a prima donna. He's a bit of, a, of an over-exaggerator. He might do well on a World Cup soccer team, you know, if something... Did the, did the dive there? Well, you see, um, Esau gives his birthright over to his trickster brother. And this is a process that keeps going on. Later, um, dad Isaac says, listen, bring in Esau into my tent. I want to bless him. I want to give him the fatherly blessing. The text says that his eyes are becoming dim. He's close to death. There's a lot of cool ancient Near Eastern stuff with the eyes being dim, but we'll leave that to the side for now because this is supposed to be a 13-minute homily. We're not making good headway on that. However, um, he says, Esau, I love it when you go out and you hunt and you cook up that stew and that's what I want you to do. Go do that for dad one more time and when you come back, I will bless you. And out at the, at the tent's door, Rebecca, the mom, is listening in, and she goes to Jacob and says, listen, uh, dad's hatching up a scheme, and, and he wants to bless Esau, but I want him to bless you instead. So here's what we're going to do. Get some of the animals. We'll cook them up. We'll make a savory dish. And because you're hairless and because you have soft hands, I'm going to take some of your brother's clothes and put them on you and take some of the skins of the animals and put them on you. Isaac must have been kind of a few steps away from dementia, I think, because you can't just put an animal pelt on somebody's neck and get away with it, right? Maybe, I don't know, unless Esau was massively hairy. These are the thoughts that I was thinking as I was preparing this week, like thinking, well, what, you know, what, if, uh, what if Esau just wanted to shave? And then that would have thrown the dad off, and my mind was going into different directions. But here, so Esau goes out to hunt. Rebecca hears about it, cooks up this stew, and Jacob goes in and steals the blessing. That's the point. He's a deceiver, and this is a trajectory for his entire life. When Esau comes back and hears that Jacob has been blessed by his dad, he pleads with him and says, Dad, there has to be a blessing for me. There has to be something left. And Isaac says, sorry, man. I've already blessed your brother, the secondborn who's taken your birthright and has now taken your blessing. Jacob has really no redeemable qualities in the first few chapters. And even as he goes off and he leaves because he knows his brother is wanting to kill him, he goes to find a wife amongst his mom's family. And he begins to continue in this life of tricking his soon-to-be father-in-law and these different people that come in and out of his life. Jacob is, at the very core, he is a deceitful person. And from the womb, he tries to be the oldest. He tries to deceive. And this is something that continues with him. And in the indictment, God is saying, and this is like you, Israel. It continues, as an adult, Jacob, it says he struggles with God. And this is a really strange passage. Jacob is heading back, getting ready to reconcile with his brother. He has sent all of the stuff that he has gotten from from his father-in-law. And he's sent all the stuff and his wives ahead of him. And he's hanging out in this place. And it says that a man shows up and he begins to wrestle with this man all night long. We later find out this man is, is God in human form. And they are wrestling all night long. My boys are in the stage of life now. We have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they have started just going upstairs, and Abel say, hey, Jude, let's go upstairs and wrestle. And if any of you know me, you know that this is like, uh, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. 
I'm not much of a wrestler. And they're just rough. Like they'll come flying out of nowhere and like drop kick each other in the face. And they're four and two. This is a life of craziness around the James household. But Jacob is, is wrestling this, this divine figure. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is this deceiver, but he's also super scrappy. And in this moment, all he wants to do is to be blessed, to meet with God, to hear from God. It says as an adult, he is struggling. It's interesting that Jacob's name, when it transforms into or turned into Israel, the root of that means struggle, wrestle. And if you think about the people of God and if you think about our faith and how sometimes we have softened it and made it all easy, when you look back to the very people of God, inherent in their name is the wrestling ones, the struggling ones, the grappling ones, the ones that will not let go when the stuff hits the fan and it gets too hard, the ones that will say, I'm not out of here until you bless me. However, in our culture, we see a lot of people, I'm done, walking away. We see a lot of people, whatever life has handed them, that's enough. And it's, it seems that there's a disconnect between the people of God who have been uh, given this, this name of struggle and wrestling and fighting and trying to hold on with everything that they have. And we see that modeled out in the life of Jacob. It says that he wept and he sought favor. The pronouns here get really messy. We don't know if it's Jacob. We don't know if it's God. We don't know if it's the messenger. There's a lot of things that are happening here. But one commentator said that whatever we can do with the weeping, we know that the weeping is moving Jacob from this life of deceitfulness into a life of something that's totally different. When he's wrestling with this figure, he's saying, I won't go until I hear from you. I won't go until I get a promise from you. I won't go until you bless me. He's seeking favor, and it says that he meets God in this place, a place that actually means house of God. Jacob and his life is moving from deceiver into receiver. This is like the only time you'll hear me being cutesy like that, where we get some rhymes and stuff. I'll hand you some things. You can fill out your fill in the blanks. Uh, not, not tonight or probably not for a while. But here he's, he's going from the deceiver into the receiver of the divine blessing. And Jacob is moving in the trajectory of his life and one scholar says the idea in this storytelling and Hosea using the story of Jacob is you, the people that are hearing the sermon, you, Israel, you are Jacob. You are both deceiver and you're also the chosen one. And you are to do as Jacob has done. You are to return to the Lord. And the hook at the end of this text unit, it says, but you in Hebrew, it could be. And as for you. I've said all this stuff about Jacob. I've said all this stuff about your past. I've said all this stuff about Israel as a people. But now for you, the people that are in, within the sound of my voice. But as for you, this is what you are to do. Follow your ancestor Jacob in the trajectory of his life and return to your God. Even more specifically, it says return to your God with faithful love and justice. A better way to translate that perhaps would be return to your God, comma, observe or keep or guard faithful love. The Hebrew there is chesed. We come back to this a lot, do we not? It's a word that I get you to say almost on a bi-weekly basis. This chesed, these acts of commitment, these acts of faithfulness. Understand the verb there. It's an action. 
We have watered down love into a thought. We have watered down love into tolerance. We have watered down love into our philosophical views on X, Y, and Z. But in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, these, these acts of faithfulness and commitment and covenant, it's what defines the people of God. They're not a people that are just thinking and processing. They are a people that are acting. Keep, observe your chesed, your faithfulness, your, your acts of love, and also observe and keep justice. Another word that has massive misconnotations in our culture today, but what's happening here is be the type of people that are about rectifying the world. When you see people on the margins, you bring them in. When you see people that are poor and oppressed, you remember what it was like to be poor and oppressed, and you bring them in. You right the wrong that's happening. You be a people of love in your actions, and you be a people of justice. Return to God, not just in your mental ascent, but in the very core of your being, and in your life, be a people of love and justice and wait continually for your God. This is not just a sit and wait. I've got this problem. I've got this thing. I'm just going to sit back and God's going to show up at some point. I know it. This is an action. This is a trust in the moment when the life is totally jacked up. You will be a person of hope in the midst of that because God will show up. Return to him. Be a person of love and justice and wait expectantly for God to show up. The same scholar Terence Fretheim says, this charge, it seems to be saying, follow in the footsteps of Jacob. Cling to God as Jacob clung to God. Wrestle with God as Jacob wrestled with God. And wait for a word of promise from God, who may appear as suddenly as he did with Jacob from long ago. Return to God. Observe these things trust in God. I want to focus just on this middle section here. Observe these acts of faithfulness and love and observe justice in the life that you are living here and now. This is how I'd like to tie this in, and I've hinted at it already. What we have done collectively, and I get busted on this a lot because I, I take the American church to task at times. But what we, I believe, as the American church have done more often than not is that we have taken Christianity and turned it into the things that we believe. We have turned it into the, to the, the statement of faith that we have and the doctrinal items that we have. And we've created a checklist where if you believe this, 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 and this, you're good. But if you think about that in that way, if you think about this in a... And what we have done is we have privileged, it sounds heretical, so stick with me, we have privileged orthodoxy, the right beliefs, the right thoughts, the right statements of faith, and what goes by the wayside more often than not is our orthopraxy, the right way of living, the right actions. And I'm here to tell you tonight that if this is news, I want, I want this to be the thing that we take away. The two cannot be broken. You cannot have right beliefs and not live it out. In the same way, I would also argue that you, as a Christian that is following Jesus, having those right actions is fueled and motivated by our right beliefs as well. These two things, they go together. This might be a dangerous um, analogy, 
but I was listening to a podcast just yesterday, so I haven't had a lot of time to let it sink in and, and simmer, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it to the 50 people in front of me right now because that's, that's wise. But it was a podcast where um, this Irish theologian, Scottish-Irish theologian somewhere over there was, was talking, uh, and someone asked him if he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And this question has underlying it so much of the right beliefs that we have. And let me just pause here for a moment because I am, um, I am me. That's a really important one. I think it's the, actually the, the whole hinge of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? But this guy's answer it was brilliant. He said, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And he said, no. My friends that know me would be able to say that there are times in my life when I do not believe in the resurrection. Those are the times in my life when I'm seeking my own gain. Those are the times in my life when I'm about me and me alone. Those are the times in my life when I am kind of rejecting the call to follow Jesus. Those are the times in, in my life when I am so uh, consumed with my own sinfulness. He says, in those moments, I am not believing the resurrection. He goes on to say, but my friends would also note that there are moments in my life when I affirm the resurrection. And those are the moments when I am acting in love. Those are the moments when I am going and, and seeking the betterment of my neighbor. Those are the moments in which I am attempting to live in the way that Jesus is asking me to live. Those are the moments in my life when I am doing what Jesus is wanting me to do. And the brilliant part of this whole thing is he's not just leaning on right beliefs or right practices. He's bringing them both together, whereas we have often missed that. In this text in Hosea, it says, return to the Lord and observe. Do, if you will, love. Do acts of commitment and faithfulness. Do justice. Don't just think about it. Don't just blog about it. Don't just post about it on Facebook. Do justice. And wait with expectation for God to show up. And what I'm seeing out of that, or at least what I want to lay out for us today in this not 13-minute homily is this. Does our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy have coherence? Or do we believe and say things that do not show up in how we live our lives? To be the church that actually follows Jesus, I would commend to us that we are a people that are striving to live out the belief that we have in something as fundamental as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to have that have real hooks in our life when we are caring about the other, when we are going after people in love and hopefulness, when we are being a people of forgiveness and grace and peace, as we have seen modeled in Jesus, as we are trusting in him for our forgiveness and for our salvation, we do not, uh, we are not content just staying there. We begin to live that out and to act in such a way that God has been asking his people to live in a way, even back to the Old Testament, even back to the ancestors, even back to the patriarchs, even back to these people saying, this is what I'm about, and I'm inviting you in to do this relationship. I'm inviting you in to show your love and your faithfulness to me in these very practical, tangible ways as you sit here in this moment. I would invite you to close your eyes. Nope, this isn't an altar call. I would invite you just for a moment to think 
about the ways that you can live this out. I would invite you to think about the people in your life that need to see your consistency, that need to see your acts of faithfulness, that need to see your love on display, that need to, to be the, uh, the beneficiaries of our advocacy and justice work. The people down the street at the garden, the people in your school districts, the people that you come into contact with in your work, the people that you have had a burden for for so long, perhaps this is the moment when the Spirit is leading you to be a person of action, to move beyond just the beliefs. As important as those are to going into being a person who demonstrates love and faithfulness and commitment in practical and tangible ways, and to be somebody who fights for the other, to be a person of justice, as we have seen modeled so beautifully in our Savior who gave it all for us on our behalf. May we too be a people that sacrifice greatly for the benefit of others in the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.